For many people cooped up at home, showering can feel like an accomplishment. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today on Second Thought, how quarantine beauty routines can languish or liberate us in an age of anxiety. When people are confronted with problems that they can't control or that they can't solve, they often look around and try to find things that they can deal with. A conversation on what beauty looks like and means behind closed doors. Plus, listeners tell us how their own self-care routines have changed. And veteran congressional reporter Jennifer Steinhauer knows what really happens at the Capitol. The dirty secret about Congress is most of these people get along pretty well behind the scenes. They have to. A look behind the scenes with the first, the inside story of women reshaping Congress. Plus, rounding up baby supplies for mamas in need. All coming up, first the news. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Self-isolation and quarantine have recalibrated our habits, our routines, and what we present to the world. People used to suiting up for work or wearing sweats and skipping showers. For many, lucky enough to still have a job, getting dressed and made up is a vestige of normalcy in a world that feels upended. For others, gray roots, shaggy beards, and chip nails are the last thing to worry about. Who are we when no one is watching, except for a Zoom meeting now and again? What has this unprecedented period behind closed doors revealed about our self-care? Are we doing it for others or ourselves? And what will happen to the beauty market when it's all over? Those are questions we're exploring now that Governor Kemp has given the green light for barbershops and hair and nail salons to reopen. And here to explore all of that is Amanda Mull, staff writer for The Atlantic, who writes about the intersection of appearance and identity including her recent article about how beauty routines have changed during coronavirus. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And Melanie Yvette, she's a blogger, a social media strategist who runs the beautifullybrown.com blog, which explores self-care, beauty, and fashion trends, particularly for women of color. Melanie, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Well, we did hear from a number of people about how their beauty routines have changed. Stop wearing makeup, doing hair, bought clippers, cut their own hair, using an online tutorial, that kind of thing. Melanie, I'm wondering for you, what kind of changes have you seen? I've actually seen a variation of changes um, about how they're either beefing up their beauty and grooming routines by keeping themselves, you know, sane and keep some type of normalcy in their actual daily routine while we're going through this quarantine and this pandemic. And I've also seen people fall back a bit more from their beauty routines and feel the weight of what's happening in the world kind of cause them to not want to take care of themselves. Uh-huh. So I've actually, you know, witnessed people feeling a wave of emotions when it comes to self-care and beauty and grooming routines, to be honest. Yeah, there's a lot going on here. And Amanda, you wrote your article at the end of March, which feels now like ages ago in coronavirus time. What were you responding to? Uh, well, I, I spent a lot of time on the internet, for better or for worse, and I had just seen a lot of people start talking about their eyebrows or their beards or their hairlines or their roots. Uh, you know, you can only talk about disaster in so much detail and for so much time before people's minds start to wander to other parts of their life. Uh, and a really common thing I was seeing was people just nervous about how they weren't going to be able to keep up some of the stuff that they would normally do for themselves or the ways that they would normally maintain their appearance. Even if they didn't think it was super, super important, it was still something that they noticed when they got up and brushed their teeth every morning. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, I read about some DIY hair color companies seeing a 200% jump in sales over the two weekends of March at the beginning of isolation, reporting that people were buying boxes at a time and other runs on beauty products, which are like the swarms we saw in the supermarket. Amanda, how do you think that kind of anxiety plays into our sense of self and beauty? Well, I think that when people are confronted with problems that they can't control or that they can't solve, like a pandemic, they often look around and try to find things that they can deal with, things that might make them a little bit better, that might sublimate their anxiety a little bit into something that they can achieve uh, pretty easily and quickly and that might make them feel better or more normal. So I think that's where you get people buying up hair dye, buying up pedicure supplies, buying up the tools of the things that they normally have done for themselves. So I think you're just seeing people looking for an alternative that makes them feel like themselves. Melanie, I'm wondering how you're seeing that play out. Since you focus especially on women of color, there's, you know, we've talked before on this program, and I know that you've blogged about it, how the sort of anxiety about standards of beauty are plague women of color, especially. How have you seen that play out during this time? Honestly, I feel like a lot of women of color, particularly when it comes to natural hair, they have been in situations where either they are experimenting with different styles and they are using that to lessen their anxiety Mm. or they are going through anxiety because this is the first time they actually have to do their own hair. Whether your hair is natural, whether your hair is relaxed, it doesn't matter. Having to tension your own hair when you're used to going to a salon or having someone do that for you can be stressful. And I definitely think women of color who are natural, who have more textured hair, who might not be used to doing their own natural hair, could be going through somewhat of a uh, emotional moment right now, trying to figure out, you know, okay, how do I learn to take care of myself? And I think it, you know, it's it, it brings on paranoia when a woman feels men and women, but definitely when a woman feels like she can't get her hair right. You know, it's yeah. nothing personal, you know, like your hair doesn't look good. You just feel embarrassed. You don't feel confident. And even though we're not leaving the house, I think even just having to look at yourself and it's uncomfortable. So I, I think I'm, I'm seeing a lot of people either want to experiment or they're really uncomfortable with the fact that they have to do their own hair and whatnot. So many of us are amped up and their anxiety over how they look. But a friend of mine also told me that not wearing makeup and doing her hair is, she said, her own form of bra burning. So a kind of release in reverting to her natural state, letting your roots grow out or spontaneously shaving your head. What do you think, Amanda? Is there a relief in here as well? I think that for some people, yes. It sort of depends on your relationship to your appearance, probably. But I think that people like the opportunity to sort of be removed from the normal standards of everyday living sometimes. And like, it's harder to be removed from some of those than others. But when it comes to appearance, this gives people an opportunity to, you know, try new styles, to see what their face looks like under their beard, to see if maybe they can cut their own bangs after all. So I think it does provide a little bit of relief from the day-to-day monotony that can come along with just maintaining a human body. But it sort of depends on how people think about their appearances and how people integrate their appearances with their identities as to how much relief that is. Well, that's that's the big question here. I mean, I will say I have reverted to my natural state, though I've now been working on two new video series on Zoom. And let's face it, if you're older than 24, you probably don't look so good on FaceTime. Not true at all. (laughs) Okay. Say that at all. Okay. All right. You can argue with me there, but I will say. 
For meetings with friends, I've found myself caring less. I mean, this is just the way that we communicate. Do you put on makeup for Zoom? Melanie, apparently not. I actually do. Because I am a girl who just feels like it makes me feel good. It makes me feel like I'm actually setting up to work. So I need my mind, body, and soul to connect. And that helps me say, okay, we're getting ready for work. So yeah, I do actually. (laughs) So how about you, Amanda? I mean, uh, I've seen articles about sort of adjusting your lighting and putting a white cloth underneath you to look better on Zoom. Well, I will say that I'm in my mid-30s. I'm a millennial. So I already know my angles and my lighting. (laughs) (laughs) So I didn't need any help on that. Um, but yeah, when, when I like have a day where I have like maybe a couple Zooms for work and a Zoom with friends afterwards, I will definitely wash my hair and blow it out that day and put on like the regular makeup I would put on if I was going to have lunch with a friend just to feel more like myself, feel more like I am, you know, readying myself psychologically for social interaction, it feels good. It feels like a normal routine. And I would rather look at myself in the reflection of the Zoom camera looking nice than looking like I just got out of bed. It just makes me feel more like a normal human. I'm speaking with Melanie Yvette, beauty blogger and social media strategist, and with Amanda Mull, staff writer for The Atlantic, about the ways quarantine has upended and redefined self-care, beauty, and really what we're getting to, I think, is identity here. Well, you both hit on something earlier about like dressing up for Zoom, that it suggests this idea that the beauty routines are performing for other people. I I mean, Amanda, I know you spoke with a psychologist for your article. So what did you learn about how people make these calculations about our appearance and why we are making them? Well, I think that the beauty routines often get put into this false binary of for yourself or for others. In reality, I think that those two things cannot be separated out because of how we feel about ourselves is often a reflection of, to a certain extent, how others feel about us, how people we respect and like and what the admiration of feel about us. So I think that those beauty routines tend to fulfill both personal purposes and social purposes. And I don't think that one is necessarily more important or more righteous than the other. So this will probably, I think, just make that clearer to people uh, and hopefully make it more clear to them what they value about what they've been doing for themselves and for their bodies and what truly makes them happy or makes them feel the most like themselves versus doing things that they feel like they're required to do. Yeah, I have a colleague who says she sometimes spritzes her perfume just because she misses the scent, you know, something that she always wears. Melanie, I think you also have been wearing perfume in quarantine? Yeah, I was, I don't know, it was something about the motion of dabbing like perfume on my neck and sitting down at my desk and working. I don't know, it's weird, but it also is reminiscent of, you know, the last thing I would do before I went out the house to go to like a meeting in the city. So it could be attached to that. Um But yeah, I feel like everyone is finding hopefully their own little small ways to, you know, maintain self-care and normalcy. But I also wanted to add that I feel like this quarantine time may be somewhat of an equalizer for how, in my opinion, social media and society in general attacks women for loving makeup and loving Mm. beauty. And we're starting to see how men as well, though many may hide what they do to maintain themselves, they are also struggling and they also do the most to upkeep themselves. And in comparison to the way women get attacked 
for wanting to, you know, look nice or get the nails done and look pretty or it's wasteful or you spend money on this, blah, blah, blah. We're seeing that men do the same. But I think that this might bring a little bit of an equalizer in terms of you can't really keep attacking us for wanting to feel good and look good as women. And I do think this is an interesting time to see how men are reacting to having to look at themselves and say, oh, yeah, I actually need my barber. Yeah, yeah. I've been seeing a lot of people, especially this last week. It's kind of gone in stages. But this last week, a lot of men just shaving their heads and, and posting pictures online. But when we look at that long arc of history of how definitions of beauty have shifted over time, it's, it's, it's been a slow train prompted by social shifts like the feminist movement of the 60s or concerted marketing efforts. I'll ask you first, Amanda, is, is there potentially new age of beauty being ushered in that by, by something that's completely out of our control? Mm, I somewhat doubt that. For a, di- a completely different article than the one we're talking about, I spoke to a bunch of disaster anthropologists and historians about li- how life usually changes after some sort of interruption like this. And they said that those personal decisions are often sort of unpredictable. What they did tell me was that often people, once they're let out of a quarantine or isolation or once they recover from a disaster, the first thing they want to do is go get as close to normalcy as possible. And for a lot of people, that means going to the hair salon, going to the nail salon, getting, you know, a massage, something like that. So I don't, I don't think we can really say that this is going to bring a new era in personal appearance. What do you think, Melanie, when we do go back out into the world again, those first parties, those first dates, you know, it's almost like the first day of school. We're all going to try and do our best to look our best. What do you think that's going to look like after months of quarantine? I think it's going to be 50-50. I think some people will just kind of um, keep on with the trend of like the casual, chic, wear, natural glow that everyone's been sort of banking on while we're quarantined. And then I think the other half would be like, nope, I'm putting on a full face, everything, hair, nails, and just go all out. And I, I'm excited to see both. Um, I do think that the beauty industry might shift their perspective on like kits and maybe going back on the DIY aspect of makeup and beauty. I remember like eyebrow stencils were a thing. I feel like Mm -hmm. that might take off. And with the fashion industry, I think it would be interesting to see if it leans on this new trend of like casual wear or if it goes all out because we've been so quarantined and we get almost like you said, this first day of school fashion industry boom of content. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm wondering how it's, how they want to play with this. We'll, we'll all be coming out with tiaras and yeah, like, and will people care because we've been so stuck in the house that we just want to see so much good fashion. I wonder how they're going to roll with that. I wonder what the wrong ways are going to look like when they get back. Um, well, I have, a, I have a question for you about that. Uh, I mean, there's been this self-sufficiency, baking, making our own food, waxing our own mustaches, And the beauty service industry is largely women, you know, nail salons, hair, waxing estheticians. So these are people's jobs that are at stake. I have a friend who has a big corporate job, and she said, you know, now that my acrylic nails have come off, why would I ever want to put them back on again? Uh, So so do you think there's going to be a shift that might leave behind this kind of beauty service industry? Yes, but I think that we might have more of just like a slow to grow 
like process in terms of getting back to like those beauty service touch points. I don't think it's going to be eradicated completely. I just think that it's going to, it's just going to be different. I do think the jobs will be slower. Unfortunately, I will say though, that I, I feel like a lot of people will women in particular run back when we can to those beauty touch points. Um, Cause that's a part of the process. It's a part of the journey. Walk into a Sephora and the, the fragrance hits you or whatever. And you're like, Oh my gosh, you know, like people miss that. So mm-hmm. I do think the jobs might be fewer, but I don't think it's going to be gone forever because people want that. What if you have any thoughts on that, Amanda, that th- these are people's jobs at stake. I, I posted something about letting my gray roots come through. And one of my oldest friends who is a hairdresser said, please don't, you know, please, please don't dye your hair at home and please don't abandon us. Well, I, for one, intend to go directly back to my salon (laughs) as soon as it is safe to go uh, to get my roots dyed because I hate them and uh, (laughs) I don't, I don't see this experience making me hate them less because like ultimately I chose to have my hair a certain way before quarantine because I liked how it looked and I, and I, I felt like it was an accurate reflection of how I wanted to look as a person. And I don't think that quarantine is going to change that about me. And I had acrylic nails for years. They certainly didn't make my life any easier, but I I loved how they looked and I loved uh, getting them done every couple of weeks. So I think that a lot of people do these beauty things because they, at least on some level, and at least in some part, genuinely really enjoy it. And I think that for people who do, no, no amount of separation between them and their nail tech or them and their hairstylist is going to fundamentally change that about them as people. Well, experts from public health, agriculture, film, streaming services have been talking about how there's no going back, that this is going to change life as we know it. What kind of changes, if any, are you anticipating within the beauty industry or just how we think about beauty and self-care? Melanie, I'll ask you first. I think the biggest changes will be that people might think twice about their spending and say, okay, well, I kind of learned how to do this on my own, so I don't have to. But I also do believe that a lot of people will say, but I enjoy this and they will spend the way they want to. I do think the spending will cut back out in the beauty industry because people will be, they'll just be in a situation where they've had to learn how to do it for themselves. I think my most optimistic self hopes that the biggest change that comes from this in the beauty industry is that hairstylists and nail techs, pedicurists and estheticians get better wages and benefits that the structure of the industry changes to better support the people who work in it, that we better appreciate the people who were doing this work for us all along, that it turns out as we try to do it ourselves in our homes is pretty difficult and pretty highly skilled and something that people deserve to be paid fairly for and to have health insurance if that's what they do with their lives. So my hope is that this will bring that sort of appreciation of people in a lot of different industries. And because the beauty industry is largely a independent contractor tipping situation. I hope that we can stabilize the careers of the people who have had to stop working for this. Amanda Mull, staff writer for The Atlantic. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. And Melanie Yvette, beauty blogger and social media strategist who runs the beautifullybrown.com blog. Melanie, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. I truly appreciate it. And in the vein of quarantine care, we're going to listen to Mythological Beauty by the band Big Thief. We put a call out on social media for listeners to share how their self-care and beauty routines have changed while isolating. Here's what a few of you had to say. 
I have not put makeup on or fixed my hair in probably six weeks now. Maybe one day I'll actually pull out the old blow dryer and uh, actually fix my hair again. But for now, it's been kind of nice to not do anything with it. Basically, we are now living in our jammies every single day. And I'm lucky if any of my girls actually get up and shower, seeing as how mommy has started skipping as well. It would be great to be able to get back to feeling like I want to get dressed up and ready to go and face the world. I now have time to do other things like running and I'm washing my hair every single day because if I'm running, I'm gross. I feel like I'm probably the only person who is actually washing their hair more. I have stopped shaving my face and started buzzing my hair a lot. Um, I've been seeing this guy virtually and we've been having FaceTime dates and he asked if we could get dressed up. So we both took it pretty seriously and got pretty dressed up. Um, I showed up in a cocktail dress and he was in a tux. It was really fun and just an experience that we probably wouldn't actually do if we were able to hang out in person. I decided to restart an accountability group. Um, I encourage people to maybe try one productivity activity to do something that builds their relationships and something that is about self-care. And it's surprising to me how much better I personally feel. Um, and it's been a really great experience for everyone. Thank you so much to those of you who called in. We are really happy to hear from you and would love to hear more. You can be in touch on our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought. We're also on Twitter at OST Talk. Coming up here from some of your other neighbors across the state and what they're doing to help others while in lockdown. I'm Virginia Prescott. That's when On Second Thought returns. I'm Virginia Prescott with GPB. The nation's food supply has been thrown into chaos by the pandemic. Schools, hotels, and restaurants that purchase meat and produce by the ton are closed. Dairy farmers are pouring out milk. The value of hogs is dropping and unhatched eggs are being crushed. One Georgia farmer is trying to turn the crisis into an opportunity for service. John Jackson is executive director of Stag Vets and founder of Comfort Farms in Milledgeville. And John, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Virginia. So what do you raise and grow at Comfort Farms? Virginia, we, uh, we specialize in heritage animals, animals that have a historical and regional significance here in the state of Georgia, um, along with produce that are heirloom, uh, pre-heirlooms and indigenous uh, seeds that um, have also a uh, historical and uh, regional significance. So I'd call those sort of specialty foods, and many of your customers are restaurants. Who do you serve? How many? We, prior to Corona, we served about 50 different restaurants in the state from Savannah to Athens to Atlanta. So what did you think when you learned that so many of the restaurants that you serve as customers were going to be closed? Oh, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, it's easy to go into anxiety mode, you know, when you realize that that your income for the farm to sustain is gone. Um, I was given a situation and in less than 24 hours, I turned our farm into a virtual farmer's market for uh, addressing the needs of our community that wanted to maintain social distancing and still have a way to get really good nutritionally dense food to their families. And so we did that in less than 24 hours and we have fed over 400 families. 
Wow. You are a, a veteran. You're a former Army Ranger. And Comfort Farms is the nation's first acute veterans crisis agriculture center. What does that mean exactly? So pretty much what it is, it's for veterans who are going through acute crisis. They're having some temporary meltdown. And what we do is kind of absorb that for them. You know, if everything pans out, I'm getting their butts to the farm and, and putting them to work, you know, getting to work and really being able to distance themselves from what's affecting them. That has really been our golden ticket to getting vets back on the right track. I'm wondering for you, John, you did a couple of tours in Afghanistan and Iraq and came back injured. Why was farming the thing for you? I'd love to hear about that experience of discovering it. Yeah. So for me, I, I, I guess it was just natural because I didn't want to be around a whole bunch of people. And I still wanted my work and my contribution to have some meaning. And what better way than to grow food and to deal with Mother Nature, right? It's, it's very synonymous with war, you know, farming. There's all like, you know, I've always said we have the war on bugs, the war on drought, the war on everything that against you. Mother Nature is just constantly throwing in monkey wrenches. And it just seemed like a very natural inclination for me to get into farming as I progressed in life after war. There are mental health professionals who project that people are going to have PTSD after going through this situation, the anxiety, the sustained unknowingness, and of course, people being ill around them. What do you think Comfort Farm offers to the vets who are already experiencing PTSD in this situation? That's a great question, uh, Virginia. So we have people who are very uh, detached from society. Our farmers markets are a way for them to do the slow crawl back into their new normal. So we do realize, and I you like to use this analogy called the the caterpillar, the cocoon, and the butterfly. Mm -hmm. And so as a caterpillar, you go out, crunch, munch, and destroy. That's your purpose in life, much like us, many of us soldiers. That's what we do. Then you go into cocoon phase of your life, the mush phase, which you don't understand what you've done. And a lot of that PTSD comes from because we want to be the person that we was before we went to war. The philosophy of Comfort Farms really helps vets to, to say that, hey, yes, you did experience those things. You did do those things. You learn so much from that. In any event, you're, you're much better than who you once were, hence the analogy of the butterfly, where the butterfly now doesn't take life. It's totally different from the caterpillar. It's giving life, and it's going around pollinating and doing things. And so I don't really like to call a lot of rangers butterflies or, or marines, but it's, it's who we are right now. And so when we adopt that, new persona of our experiences. That's how we deal with PTSD. We let our experiences mold us in a way, even though they may be traumatic, but to make us better and to do good for the world. That's a beautiful way to think of it. But what if we continue that and, you know, we're in this difficult transformative period right now, when we get to the other side of this and restaurants and schools reopen and interactions are face to face again, how do you think the food supply and the experience of farmers in this country might change? Great question. You know, I tell people this, and I know this might shock some people, that the worst thing to happen out of the corona pandemic 
is not dying from coronavirus. The worst thing that can happen to you is going back to the way that you used to live by taking life for granted. Okay, everybody knows that prior to corona, we had it good. I mean, as Americans, the world over, we had it good. But what this has taught us in corona, in my opinion, the, the virus has slowed us all down. The earth, in my opinion, is taking a break from us. That's how I'm looking at it. Many people are out here. They come to the farm. They'll get out. They'll walk with their family. They haven't done those things before. I know fathers right now who are making dinner for their kids. They come here. They're doing family meals together. These are the things that we did not do prior to Corona and into the pandemic. So I'm looking at it as that silver lining in the sky. Although yes, people are suffering, but you know what? The, the highlight of all of this is that we're becoming more human again. And we realize that the most important things in life are the basics that we need in life. And so to go back the way that we were, that's worse than dying from Corona, in my opinion. John Jackson, I want to thank you so much for your time. Thank you, ma'am. Appreciate it. John Jackson, executive director of Stag Vets and founder of Comfort Farms. He joined us from his farm in Milledgeville. Now to another cog in the supply chain disrupted by the pandemic, diapers. Just over five years ago, Jamie Lackey was a social worker, a nonprofit professional, and a mother who could see gaps in services providing baby supplies and families who needed them. Financial assistance programs like SNAP do not allow for purchasing diapers and other essentials. So in late 2014, Lackey launched a nonprofit out of a friend's garage. She named the startup Helping Mamas. What we do is we collect and distribute essential baby items to organizations that serve uh, women and children living in poverty. We collect things like diapers, wipes, car seats, cribs, clothing, bottles, anything that you might need for a child birth to age 12. The need was there long before shelter-in-place guidelines and mass unemployment. COVID-19 has only increased demand and presented new obstacles for families already struggling. We've seen a huge increase in uptake and need right now, like nothing I've ever seen before in my 20 years of being a social worker. There are days we're distributing over 15,000 diapers a day, and that's what we would sometimes distribute in a normal month. So the need has just grown dramatically. Demand is way up, but social distancing has put the kibosh on social workers and people from partner agencies browsing the Helping Mamas Norcross warehouse for diapers and other supplies. They now offer contactless pickups, filling out orders and putting them in a safe place to be carried back to needy families across the state. Helping Mamas is trying to raise money for a van to be able to distribute supplies a little bit more quickly. Among their partners, the Atlanta Mission, the Salvation Army, Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, and the Southern Center for Choice Theory, which provides counseling and mental health support, particularly for families struggling with poverty and or violence. The needs are great, according to the center's therapist and development director, Andrea Cook. Specifically, Macon has a concentrated poverty rate of 44.7%. A lot of the job opportunities that are in this area are... Um, laborers and people who are going to come into contact. And if you don't work in a grocery store or if you don't work in a restaurant, uh, even if you did work in those those arenas, 
you've either lost hours or you've chosen to not do those jobs because you have to take care of your children who are no longer in school. Cook says that working with Helping Mamas allows them to provide quality products and relief to struggling parents living with the stress and uncertainty of coronavirus. The diaper bags that I've been able to give to parents have been phenomenal. Helping Mamas has helped me to be able to get diapers and pull-ups and wipes and bottles to those families so that they don't have to leave home to get them. And they don't have to use viable resources to purchase those things because we can help them. Despite the governor's attempts to restart the economy, the toll of the pandemic will be especially hard on those already struggling. One in three moms has to choose between food and diapers for their children. And um, it is a decision that families are literally making every day right now. So we're so grateful that we're here and that we're able to serve and that we're able to get so many diapers and so many essential items out to families that need them so much right now. That's Jamie Lackey, CEO and founder of Helping Mamas. We also heard from Andrea Cook from the Southern Center for Choice Theory in Macon. To learn more about Helping Mamas and how you can help, visit their website at helpingmamas.org. We'll also post a link at gpbnews.org. And that's just one of our stories about Georgians helping out at a time of crisis. You can keep up with all of our interviews or just listen on your own time by subscribing to On Second Thought for free on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, the squad gets a lot of attention, but that is just one part of the record number of women elected to Congress in 2018. After the break, we'll talk with congressional reporter Jennifer Steinhauer, who gives us the inside story on this remarkably diverse group of women making their way from outsiders to legislators. That's when On Second Thought continues. Stay with us. I'm Virginia Prescott. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Last week, the Atlanta History Center launched a virtual author talk series. I am thrilled to be hosting these conversations, and you are invited to join and to submit your own questions. Our first guest, Jennifer Steinhauer, is a 25-year veteran reporter for The New York Times. Among her beats, Capitol Hill, which is the focus of her new book, The Firsts. The Inside Story of the Women Reshaping Congress. It follows the record number of women elected to the House of Representatives in the 2018 midterms. It was the most diverse freshman class ever elected, the first Muslim women representatives ever, the first Native American women, the first two Latina members from Texas, two black women from New England, and the two youngest members ever elected to the House. Many won seats held by Democrat incumbents. Some flipped districts long held by Republicans with bootstrap campaigns and social media muscle that defied campaign conventions. Jennifer Steinhauer was there as the 116th Congress was sworn in in January of 2019, including the four women who became known as the Squad. 
all of them carrying their willpower, biographies, and policy priorities into a traditional institution where freshmen were pretty much expected to sit back and listen. I asked Jennifer Steinhauer to talk about some of the ways the firsts challenged how things are done in the House. Well, of course, the most notable one was when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who had beaten an incumbent Democrat um, and to show up as the youngest person uh, ever in the House, which, by the way, um, people were amazed that she did that. But uh, Joe Crowley, who she beat, was everyone, a lot of people's friend, you know, so she's coming in. Who's this person? She picked off my friend, you know, um, and one of the first things she did was kind of suggest that other members, um, other incumbents needed to have some primary challenges, so that right away was something that you hardly ever see and caused some friction. Um, but beyond having any conflict with their colleagues, a lot of them um, were kind of saying to leadership, to Nancy Pelosi, to the other leaders uh, who, you know, average age, you know, 78 years old, hey, we're the new blood. Um, we return the, the House to the Democrats. There's a lot of us. We're not your typical freshmen. And we want to have more seat at the table. And Nancy Pelosi uh, smartly put a lot of them in as many positions of power as she could, whether it was giving them, you know, bills to sponsor or making them uh, chair women of subcommittees to try to, you know, make sure that they, they had a sense of unusual power for freshmen. Well, you see the first exposed shoulders on the House floor, the first headscarf, first babies. In many ways, they're calling attention to their differences by asking for these historic accommodations. How had that been handled in the past when women were suddenly in the House? Well, it's interesting um, that you frame it as an accommodation, which is an interesting way of looking at it. I think that um, for people in politics generally, and specifically for women, it's so long been the case that you kind of can't be your authentic self. You know, you have your game face, you have the, the, your political persona, if you will, how you behave on a campaign trail. And I think that these women, what it was is they were just embraced who they were, whether they were parents, you know, they, and they had to run off to a meeting from a meeting and call their kids. I know um, one member, Johanna Hayes, told me she will not take meetings at lunchtime because she does stuff with her kids at that time. And you speak of the headscarf that um, Ilhan Omar got an accommodation to to break the hat rules. You still can't wear hats on the floor, but you can wear religious headgear. So in recognition of um, of the diversity and the um, the female ways, if you will, I think it was just basically people speaking and saying, we're bringing our whole selves to Congress and to the workplace. People elected us because they like those those people. And we're not going to change them just because we've gotten to this institution. Well, this was not wholly embraced by Speaker Pelosi, who reprimanded the firsts on occasion. From her perspective, you got to hang together if you have power and you want to keep it. And she had to struggle to mitigate these wedges between the progressives and moderates in her caucus. And that really, in many ways, has been the driving story of the 2020 Democratic presidential primary. A number of former moderates and Elizabeth Warren have all thrown support behind Joe Biden, who's now the presumptive nominee after the progressive Bernie Sanders is out. So what does that tension mean for the dynamics in the House and with the firsts? So with the Democrats who beat Democratic incumbents and who are the more progressive wing they gave life to the progressives that were already in the House that were kind of on the margins, right? And then you had all these um, so-called moderates. And I, I always like to use that word loosely, but just for the sake of this conversation, they're people who beat Republicans. Mm-hmm. And they understand that their district isn't made up primarily of Democrats or majority of Democrats. And so they want to stay, keeping your power, they want to stay in office too. 
And so this tension was always between, do you move the party to the left and, and make that be the, sort of the party that everyone kind of base sort of dreams of? Or do you stick more to the middle and make sure that people who beat Republicans can uh, hew there and, and stay and get reelected? It's just the way people running for the White House, they need a broad coalition, you need a broad coalition to win elections. And when you're on the far left to the far right of your party, it's hard to bring in a big, a big coalition to win. And that's look that the Republicans had their own battle with that, with the Tea Party wave in, in 2010, when they took over the House, they had the same internal battle. And we see where they are. They ultimately became, um, I think, without any argument, and for now, the party of Donald Trump, that's the decision they made. That's where they landed. And Democrats now are, are in that struggle. And I think we've kind of seen where they are in this moment in time. But that struggle is going to continue. It's continued this day. You mentioned Elizabeth Warren. You know, um, uh, Biden's trying to get AOC's endorsement. And she's been asking for all these different you know, concessions on climate and health care. They're trying to really push the party. And that's going to continue. Well, the squad have certainly been influential. And Lauren asked, why have only the four women in the squad gotten so much public attention? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting because, um, I mean, AOC originally got so much attention because no one heard of her and she won this race. And she was um, this very telegenic, outspoken person who really had this social media following and became this big political following that people really hadn't seen before. And then I think a lot of the reason that they got attention, frankly, is because they came in the crosshairs of the president and they were sparring with him and he was identifying them as um, the symbols, if you will, of the far left, um, you know, as they defined it, socialists, um, and tried to kind of make them the face of the Democratic Party. So in my personal view, um, the true squad, if you want to use that, is actually a different group of women who beat Republicans. Um, these women are uh, veterans and national security background um, women. Um, I think of Mikey Sherrill from New Jersey. You have Elaine Luria, who's the Navy from Virginia. Abigail Spamberger, who was a CIA operative. Also, she's from Central Virginia. Um, Alyssa Slotkin from Michigan. Chrissy Houlihan from Pennsylvania. They all had this national security background and veteran background. And they knew each other before the campaign, unlike the squad. These women campaigned together. They got a lot of the same fundraising um, monies together and did events together. They had this group text. They're always kind of planning legislation together. They do more. They, they vote much more together. The squad is not cohesive legislatively. They kind of go their own way. And it's it's a little it's a little overstated how much they actually hang together. Where um, that other group, uh, they really, in my view, do. Well, I want to ask you more about the the badasses. That's what they call themselves. These five women with national security credentials, CIA, former CIA ops officers, for example, after the squad spending a lot of time trying to ratchet up pressure to impeach President Trump, this is especially after the Mueller report over the summer, the badass has actually played a really influential role in moving Speaker Pelosi forward on impeachment. So, so what did they do? So, again, in that classic tension, the more liberal end of the party really wanted to impeach the president from day one, literally. You know, this came up during uh, the day after they were sworn in. Um, Rashida Tlaib infamously talked about impeaching the president, almost sort of overshadowed everything else that went on that day. And people who won these districts were 
you know, quite frankly, a lot of them, when they were campaigning, didn't even talk about President Trump. Forget about impeachment. They didn't even mention his name because that was not going to necessarily be a popular message. They talked about health care. They talked about other issues. And so um, they kind of came together, group texting, and they were talking about this is really different, this Ukraine call. This is different than everything else we've heard. Mueller report, forget it. This is something from a national security standpoint, from our background standpoint, that cannot stand. And they wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post that they shared with Nancy Pelosi before it was published. And that was very influential, not just on her, it was very influential on their colleagues. Because now here are some people from Republican districts who've been very resistant to the impeachment message, who on on the basis of national security credentials were advocating for this. And history will show, you know, whether that was a wise choice or not to go forward, but they certainly played a pivotal role. It's going to be really interesting to see how support for impeachment plays out in the next election cycle. The Democrats, of course, they're banking on the future of the party as a multicultural coalition and getting black and brown and working class voters under the tent. It's been reinforced in the rhetoric and the policy pushes from the squad and from others. But you point out that some of those, like AOC, the acknowledged superstar, won in whiter and richer parts of her district. And since the book has come out, we've seen the routing of a number of justice Democrats, as they're called, in primaries, suggesting that the voters may not be in the same page. So what is the message from voters? Well, I mean, I think the message was given pretty loud and clear with the, um, at the time, somewhat surprising and then absolutely um definitive routing that Joe Biden did. I mean, uh, you there are individual districts that are very Democratic. Um, and and by the way, you know, uh, demographics drive this too, youth a lot. And perhaps that's the future of the party um, to be pretty far to the left. But I think that we're seeing where the broadest coalition of the party is now, whether it's older voters, older, especially older African-American voters who are the ba- huge part of the base. We see that um, that message is not uh, is not as popular as the so-called more moderate message. But, you know, I always like to say this, and I say this to, to kids a lot who are really uh, on the left who are very frustrated, and they laugh at me, but I mean it. I say every single Democrat who was on that stage in the beginning, and I would include Joe Biden in this pretty much, are to the left of Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. And the idea, everybody um, on the left wants Medicare for all, I get it. And they think that um, single payers, like this, this squish position, well, that was um, considered very far left when I first got to Washington and people lost their seats over that. So people kind of forget sometimes the party's policy objectives um, have moved quite a bit to the left in many ways over the last decade, but they're not necessarily where AOC is as a, broadly as a party in our country. But so you've painted this picture of the process and in many ways, I read this book and see you as a reporter watching these conversations go on and the process of democracy, uh, the sausage being made, if you will, in Congress. But in many ways, there's also a, a kind of beauty and respect that you have for the institution and the way that things get debated. I'm just wondering if you have any reflections on that as a long-term reporter and somebody who sees this kind of where's the outrage play over and over again in cycles. Well, it's funny you say sausage because I think you you see there's a scene in my book where Nancy Pelosi is kind of getting mad at her caucus and saying, you know, you got to come together. You got to get it together here. You know, you, a lot of you people came here to make foie gras, but most of the days we're just making sausage. And I thought that was obviously very um, 
um, apt analogy. Yeah, I um, uh, I believe um, in in the legislative process. You know, the Congress is kind of that's the the yay or nay spot of um, prescriptive policy in our country in, in any direction, and that process comes together in a way that you don't see on cable and you don't see on Twitter and you don't see um, in political ads, which is through not very sexy, not very exciting um, business of committee work and writing bills and having hearings and having discussions. And, you know, the dirty secret about Congress is most of these people get along pretty well behind the scenes. They have to. They sit in committees together. They sit there. I see them in elevators together. I see Republicans make fun of AOC, boy, they'll chase her down a hallway to say hello to her. They're fascinated with her. I mean, a little less so now the time has gone by, but they were just so interested in meeting her. So these these um, these people get along better on a day-to-day basis. And there's all kinds of stuff that they work together on. It's just kind of not stuff that you read about in the news. And that's the thing people really don't see. Um, but that's the important part. And that's how our democracy, you know, does seem to manage to survive. <laughs> That's New York Times reporter Jennifer Steinhauer talking about her book, The First, The Inside Story of the Women Reshaping Congress. We edited a version of this, but you can watch a video of the full conversation at AtlantaHistoryCenter.com. We'll put a link up at GPBNews.org. And this free virtual author talk series resumes on Saturday, that's April 25th at 2, with Sue Monk Kidd talking about her new novel, The Book of Longings, which imagines the life of the wife of Jesus. It's pretty bold and really interesting. You can see a full schedule and get Zoom links at atlantahistorycenter.com. On Second Thought is a team effort from supervising producer Amelia Brock, producer Priya Mahadevan, Jesse Neiswanger, and Jake Troyer are engineers. Our intern is Chase McGee. Mary Lynn Ryan is executive producer. I'm Virginia Prescott. Grateful to be spending some time together. Thanks, as always, for listening. <laughs>